Our scripture reading tonight comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2. John chapter 2, we will be looking at verses 13 through 25. Hear now the reading of God's word. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that your spirit would prepare our hearts and minds to receive it, that we would know what we ought to know and believe what we ought to believe concerning your son, Jesus Christ, and the work that he has come to do, and the temple, and how he has fulfilled it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How far would you be willing to go to defend the honor of God's name? You think about the steps that people would go through to defend the honor of other people's names, be it family members, a spouse, parents, something of the sort. But how far would you go to defend the honor of God's name? So often in our world, in our day, we see God mocked, blasphemed. His word and will all around us despised as false, outdated, bigoted, ignorant. We see people make fun of God, call him names, say things like, well, God is just the sky fairy that you know, doesn't really exist. He's a myth, just like anything else. God's people are accused of every kind of ism and phobia that the world can conceive. Loyalty to Christ in our day puts employment, family relationships, friendships, other societal benefits in jeopardy. So how far would you go to defend the honor of God's name? 
We continue tonight our study in the Gospel of John. Last week we looked at, John, at Jesus' first recorded miracle. It was at a wedding feast in Cana. There we saw Jesus asserting his authority over the ceremonies of the scribes and Pharisees, these corruptions of God's word, these, legal, these legalisms which had been added to God's word. And Jesus did this by miraculously turning water into wine in those washing vessels which had been imposed as a burden, a yoke of slavery on God's people, above and beyond what the law required. But this miracle was done in secret. It was done in the back room at a wedding feast in a small Galilean village. But Jesus Christ showed in this that he was Lord over the law, over how God was to be honored and served. And this week, this assertion of lordship will be escalated significantly. The scene moves from the rural villages of Galilee, for a moment, to the temple in Jerusalem, the house where God chose to set his name. Christ will come and assert his authority and his zeal for the true worship of God at the center of all Jewish religious life, at the time where it is most consequential during the feast of the Passover. He will do some things that seem rather strange and shocking to us as we read them, as we hear them. But he does them in defense and in honor of God's name and God's house and God's worship. This text challenges in many ways what we think about Christ's authority and engagement with the world. And we will look at Christ's assertion of authority tonight in four points. First, we see corruption in verses 13 through 17. When Jesus arrives at the temple for the Passover, what he sees is a picture very far from how God commanded this feast to be observed and what was to be done in this temple, and he does something about it. Second, we see a confrontation in verses 18 through 20. Jesus tells Jesus and the Jewish leaders that he is unsettled by his actions. They have a talk. They have a discussion about what he has done. Third, a conquest in verses 21 and 22. Jesus foretells his ultimate triumph over this corrupt worship and everything else. And then fourth and finally, a concealment in verses 23 through 25. Though the situation has escalated Christ withdraws because his hour has not yet come and because he knows what is in man. So we have corruption, confrontation, conquest, and then concealment. So first we will look at corruption in verses 13 through 17. We see in verse 13 the first recorded instance in John where Jesus comes to Jerusalem. This is the first of three Passovers clearly documented in John. There's this one, there's another one in chapter 6, and then the final Passover at which Jesus will be crucified. Commentator D.A. Carson, he places this first Passover as that of A.D. 28, about two years before Jesus' death, which sets the length of Jesus' public ministry at just over two years. Now, Jesus does what the law of Moses required all Jews to do. He comes to Jerusalem to keep the Passover. 
By the time of Jesus' ministry, the Jews were a scattered people. People would come from far and wide. They were scattered all over the known world. So they would have to make long pilgrimages to come to Jerusalem to make their sacrifices, offer their gifts and offerings to the temple, and to keep the feast. Now, as a pragmatic solution to this problem of dispersion, part of the temple, specifically the court of the Gentiles, the outermost court of the temple, was turned into a marketplace. So those coming to the feast to offer sacrifices and give their offerings, they could purchase animals for the sacrifice, they could change their foreign money into the local currency for things like the temple taxes and the other gifts. One commentator notes that these were not honest merchants. They were likely, for the sake of convenience, charging exorbitant prices for their sacrifices and giving unfair exchange rates on the money. And they did this in the temple, which means they would have done it with the approval of the priests in the temple. The priests were probably getting a cut. They were probably in on this scam. And while theoretically it was possible that the people could still bring their own animals for the sacrifices, the priests were disincentivized to accept the sacrifices that people brought. They would more likely reject a sacrifice somebody brought to force them to buy from their dirty dealers. Now, this is happening, as I said, in the court of the Gentiles. And this was so named because it was the closest to the Holy of Holies. It was the innermost portion of the temple that non-Jews were allowed to come into. It was where Gentiles who believed in God, who were God-fearers, converts to Judaism, it was where they could come and pray and worship God, or at least that was what it was supposed to be. But this corrupt arrangement by these priests and traders had turned this court of the Gentiles, this place that was supposed to be a place of prayer and worship, to a combination of a financial exchange and a livestock sale barn. This is not a place conducive to the worship of God. It is effectively denying the Gentiles their proper place and ability to worship God. And this is what so enrages Jesus, that in verse 15 we see that he fashions a whip of cords and physically and violently drives these merchants out of the temple. This is not a peaceful exchange. This is a violent outburst. It very much challenges the popular cultural idea that people often have of Jesus Christ. We know that Christ was without sin in all that he did. And yet from that, people often think and speak of Christ as a passive pacifist, was always nice and gentle and winsome to people. And yet here we see something that shatters that perception. The Son of God is provoked by righteous zeal to even using physical force to defend and protect God's house and God's worship. He takes up a weapon and commits righteous violence against God's enemies. He drives out the sheep and the oxen. He demands the bird sellers to leave. He's rebuking them. He says, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. The temple is not for making money. It's not for the self-enrichment of the priests and their friends. 
Now, we live in an age where worship is often trivialized and corrupted by anything and everything imaginable. We have people like the prosperity preachers, the those who proclaim the health and wealth gospel. They've turned the worship of God and the preaching of his word into a money-making scheme. We have pastors and teachers who are very much more interested in raising their prestige and publishing books and getting on TV and having the praise of man than they are interested in faithfully ministering to their people and overseeing pure worship. It was the corruption of worship that provoked the only perfect and sinless man who ever lived to use force. Many people in our day won't even raise their voice to stop the abuses and corruptions of worship in the church. But Christ took up a whip and drove them out. Now, among the many implications of this text, we see a fulfillment of prophecy. In Psalm 69, verse 9, David writes, The zeal for God's house has eaten him up. But what was true in a shadowy form for David comes to its fullness in Christ. He is consumed by zeal for God's house and worship. Now this has far-reaching implications for us. The Christ that we worship is zealous for his worship. He will not accept it being profaned. He will not accept it being done according to that which he has not asked or commanded. While there is financial corruption and collusion among the Jerusalem priesthood, the greatest offense was that this was done at the expense of God's glory and his worship among his people from all nations. Again, this is a challenge to us. In our day, in how we think about and engage with the secular and pluralistic and unbelieving world, we probably most concern ourselves with, with moral matters of the second table of the law, things like killing, stealing, sexual immorality, things of that sort. And, and rightly so, these are very important matters, matters with which we ought to be concerned. But the matter that provokes Jesus to this righteous indignation and wrath the most, in fact, this happens twice, because the other Gospels record what appears to be a later episode where Jesus has to come and cleanse the temple again, what provokes Jesus in this way is the corruption of worship, the corruption of God's temple, the place where God has set his name. First table of the law, issues concerning love for God. Where Christ was most zealous, that's where we often tend to be the most indifferent. We see God's name and his worship corrupted and mocked and insulted and belittled all around us all the time. We usually just go along with our day, shrug it off. Abraham Kuyper, the famous Dutch theologian and politician, wrote of his travels to Muslim countries and colonies and how even among the so-called secular elites in those Muslim countries, no one would dare in public speak ill of Allah or the Prophet Muhammad. We have a pretty good idea through the news stories and the like, even in our day, what would happen if they did. And not to condone Islam's violence or their false worship of a false god, but they put our ostensibly Christian nations in the West to shame. 
because we know and we serve the true God. And yet we let his name be blasphemed in public and let his worship be corrupted all around us. And it scarcely produces a response. It can scarcely even get our interest. Does zeal for the Father's house consume us like it consumed Christ? Furthermore, we also have to recognize that there come times in warfare against the world where we as Christians have to choose a setting other than nice and polite and gentle. Now, by all means, we should live at peace as much as it depends on us. But when wolves come to do violence to God's name, to God's worship, and to God's people, there may come a time where we have to respond confrontationally, where we cannot sit idly by and watch evil in our midst. Now, the zeal that Christ shows in the temple in cleansing it does produce a response from the authorities. And this brings us to our second point. After corruption we see a confrontation in verses 18 through 20. The Jews, the leaders of the people, respond to Jesus' actions by questioning his authority to do them. Basically, who are you to come here into God's temple and tell us how we ought to conduct our business? And specifically, they want a sign. Someone acting in this way needs a divine mandate to do so, and that could be Proven that could be manifested through the doing of a sign. Well, Jesus answers them, but in the way that Jesus often does when he is engaging with his critics and opponents during his ministry, he doesn't quite answer the question that's being asked or in the way that the questioners would want. Because Jesus is God, he knows what is in the hearts of men, as we see later in this passage. Jesus answers, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now this question is deliberately answered in such a way that the audience there isn't going to get it. I mean, they're in the temple in Jerusalem. So if Jesus talks about a temple, they're going to, by default, think that Jesus is talking about that temple. And their response reflects that. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days, It does sound kind of outlandish. Now Israel was at this time most concerned and most occupied with their temple. It was the center of their national and religious identity. Note that they just know off the cuff the history of this temple. This temple was the second temple built by the returned exiles after the Babylonian captivity. This rebuilding was chronicled in the book of Ezra. This temple would have undergone a major renovation right before the time of Christ under Herod. The Jews, they just know all this off the top of their heads. It's very much something they're interested in, something they're concerned about. But what Jesus is actually doing here, he's not talking about the building. He is using typology. He is using symbolism. The temple was the place on earth where God was said to dwell, not that God is ever confined to or contained in a building. But God revealed to Israel a temple that they ought to be built and in which he was to be worshipped and in which he would manifest his glory. But this was merely a type. This was a shadow of a greater thing to come. For when Christ comes, God dwells on the earth in a new and powerful way that he had not before. 
What the temple really is, is a type of Christ. Christ is the greater and final temple. He fulfills the temple. He brings the age of an earthly temple to an end. The temple passages, for instance, at the end of the book of Ezekiel, they describe a temple much larger than any previously built that our dispensationalist friends that will appeal to to say that the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt again is really a prophecy about Christ. He is the new and greater temple. He is how God has come to dwell with man in this age. But the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they missed this. They continue to miss this. The temple which Jesus cleansed that day, it was destroyed in A.D. 70, and it has never been rebuilt. We should never desire to see it rebuilt. This would be a return to the types and shadows. It would be a return to lesser things. We don't need the temple any more than we need the blood sacrifices that were done in it or the dietary laws that had to be kept to enter it or any of these other ceremonies of the law. They are fulfilled and done away with in Christ. But these Jewish leaders of Jesus' day could not see past their earthly temple. They figure that Jesus is really challenging them to tear down this building on this hill in Jerusalem, 46 plus years in the making, and that he will rebuild it where he is. They missed the point completely. People today still struggle to see past the temple. But John, writing after Jesus' resurrection and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does understand. And this brings us to our third point. After corruption and confrontation, we see conquest in verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body, John writes, and he here foreshadows the glory that is to come. Verse 22, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed in the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So Jesus is using this typological language, speaking of himself, speaking of his body as the true temple. There will come a day, a couple of years after this event here in John 2, where the body of Jesus' temple will be broken down in the most brutal and graphic of ways possible. Jesus will be brought in on false charges. A kangaroo court will find him guilty. Judges, including the very priests of Israel that Jesus crosses on this day in John 2. The confrontation has already begun. In fact, it had already begun back in John 1 when the Pharisees sent their representatives to interrogate John the Baptist. Really, this conflict had begun from the foundation of the world when God, out of his good pleasure, elected some to everlasting life. Jesus is foretelling his ultimate conquest. Though he will be tried as a criminal, convicted, put to death by the hands of evil men, by the most brutal and gory means possible, having the flesh of his body ripped from his back, being nailed to a cross and hanging there for hours until he suffocates to death, and then being buried in a tomb for three days. 
Even though all of that, even though the temple of Christ's body will be reduced to rubble on the third day, on that resurrection Sunday, Jesus will be raised up from the dead. That temple of his body was rebuilt. And this was all by the will and plan and power of God. This was Christ's intention from the beginning. Here from the earliest days of his public ministry, he is declaring to his opponents, though they do not yet understand, that he has already won. Though they have wandered far from their God and polluted his temple and corrupted his worship, he will conquer not only gods and our enemies, but sin and death and hell itself. And John remembers these words after Jesus is raised though he too probably did not understand them at the time. By the illumination of the Spirit, he and the other disciples come to realize the things that Jesus said in his life concerning his suffering and death. And they believe in these words. And they recorded these words for us so that we might believe. However, the time of Jesus' suffering and death has not yet come here in John 2. And so this brings us to our final point. After the corruption, confrontation, and conquest, we see concealment in verses 23 through 25. The time for Jesus' suffering and death had not come during this first Passover that day in Jerusalem. What does happen is that in verse 23, many people do believe in his name when they see the signs that he did. Though we do not know exactly what those signs are or who these people are, Jesus, as he had previously done at Cana, he does signs in Jerusalem. He also likely had gotten some attention by this temple cleansing. You could imagine causing a scene like that in a public place and the Passover feast. People are going to want to know what's going on. Throughout John, we will see this pattern of people who believe and follow Jesus when Jesus does signs. This perhaps becomes most evident once Jesus starts doing signs of healing and feeding, signs that meet people's physical and temporal needs in a time and place where medical care was primitive and starvation was prevalent. Some truly believe, but some believe only for a time. Once resistance intensifies, Once Jesus starts teaching hard truths, many fall away. And Jesus knows infallibly who are his and who are not. We see this here at the end of chapter 2, verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Jesus being God is all-knowing. He is omniscient. He knows what every person thinks and where every person stands in relation to him. Now, while there are those who... Are truly Jew, who are truly Jesus' people, truly his sheep, coming to faith in him at this first recorded Passover, there are some who are not. While it's not apparent to other men, those who truly belong to Christ and those who will fall away, Christ knows. Now sometimes it's not obvious. In the next chapter, we will see Jesus meeting with a man who, at least at first, does not appear to be one of those who has true faith in Christ. However, he will come back around later and demonstrate that he is, in fact, a true follower and true friend of Christ. Among Jesus' own disciples, there will be Judas, part of the close inner circle. He will be the treasurer of the disciples. 
he will betray Jesus and fall away. Like those in the temple, he loved money more than he loved his God. Most of all, Jesus limits the knowledge of himself. He only gives this typological revelation that many misunderstand because he knows that the time for his suffering and death have not come. He knows when it will. There will come another Passover where Jesus will be delivered into the hands of evil men and will undergo the drinking of the cup of the wrath of God. But as has already been indicated in this passage, not only does Jesus know who is his, but he knows that his success and victory are already assured. But he also knows that this must come at the appointed time. So what do we make of this text tonight, this first confrontational Passover recorded in John's Gospel? Now first, we must ask ourselves, do we have zeal for the Lord's house? As Jesus was so moved, so enraged at false worship, at the neglect of true worship, at the partiality in the place of worship, do we share those kinds of concerns? All around us, and probably even in our own lives, we see decline and decay of worship. We think lightly of God's things. We think lightly of his church. We think lightly of what he has called us to do. And so we should examine our hearts, examine ourselves in light of God's word for correction unto the truth. But perhaps you're here tonight, this news of Christ is new to you, or it has become alive to you for the first time. Jesus Christ was God, became man. He lived a perfect life of obedience and was without sin. He then, as foretold in this passage, suffered the excruciating death of the cross to bear the wrath of God due for our sins so that our sins might be forgiven and we might be reconciled to God. The offer of the gospel extended once again to you this evening is that to all who would repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation and forgiveness and eternal life are offered. Furthermore, Know that Jesus Christ, who that day in Jerusalem knew what was in the hearts of all men concerning whether or not they truly believe in him, even here tonight knows who are his and who are not. You could potentially fool others. You could potentially fool yourself, but you cannot fool your Lord. And so come to Jesus, trust in Jesus, worship Jesus, and find life, love, and hope. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. We thank you for your work. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who all these centuries ago suffered and died in our place, became the new and greater temple that was broken down, but that on the third day was raised up again. And by the power of his resurrection, we too can have the hope of resurrection and salvation and new life. I pray that we all here gathered tonight would believe this gospel, that we would apply it to our lives, and that we would love and be zealous for your worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.